Lord, this morning we do praise you for your goodness and your care and the security that you give that this passage that we'll look at assures us of and that we may keep it in mind as we live in an insecure world where things not only fall apart physically, but uh, we don't even know what to expect tomorrow. But with you, we are assured of not only our salvation, but our sanctification, our relationship, and everything related to spiritual things. We praise you for that. And as we look at your passage, we desire to be illumined by the Holy Spirit, that we may be transformed this morning, and would in fact uh, leave here not only encouraged, but ready to face that unstable world for the rest of the week. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in the book of Romans, I want to conclude chapter 8. Chapter 8 is kind of the highlight of the book. The focus, in fact, there's a great contrast. Paul, at the end of chapter 8, gives somewhat the high point and should elicit great rejoicing in the believer. And then when he turned to chapter 9, we won't get into it today. I'll hopefully give you a brief introduction. But notice, from great joy, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing witness, bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief. So what is the difference here? Well, we won't see that yet, but this is the high point. The point I'm stressing here is Romans 8 is somewhat the high point in the whole book. And then he deals with a different topic beginning in chapter 9. So this area of security, and I've been emphasizing that the passage is in the context of sanctification. So that's why I title this security of sanctification. In other words, God is going to complete the work that he began when we first trusted in him. We can be assured of that based on the passage we're looking at. Now, most people use this passage to give us assurance and security in terms of our salvation. Well, kind of an extension of sanctification. You can't have sanctification without salvation. So basically, you could uh, use this passage for both. Because sanctification is the end product of salvation. And that is assured in the passage 31 through 39. Now, we've looked at most of it, and we'll move on to the last part, last couple of verses of the focus today. And again, if you think the world is insecure today, you should have lived in the Roman Empire, where the believer was very insecure in terms of his relationship, first of all, to the government, but relationships with the unbelieving world was very, very insecure and lots of tribulation. In fact, he hints at that in the passage we looked at last week. Problems, issues, suffering, and in that context, Paul gives great security. So we are in the section 6 through 8, sanctification, security of sanctification, and he frames his discussion around questions. He has seven questions. We've already looked at all seven of them. And he's kind of probing in terms of his thinking to elicit your thinking or our thinking in terms of, could you think of anything that could separate us or in any way make us insecure in our relationship with the Lord? 
And basically, these questions can all be answered with a resounding no. So he asks a series of questions, 31 through 35, and then 36 through 39. He expands upon the answers. Now, even though the questions are rhetorical and the questions deal with that security and the answer is no, he still expands upon that in 36 to 39. And he reminds the reader, you and I, what were the believers in the Old Testament considered? They were considered like sacrificial lambs dying daily. Remember we looked at that verse? And in fact, on the verge of sacrifice. So 31 to 35 questions, 36 to 39, the emphasis is the answers. So we have consideration of the Old Testament, and the focus last week was 37, conquers are described. And it's in the midst of suffering, it's in the midst of persecution, it's in the midst of everything falling apart in our everyday experience, and in that we can become overwhelming Conquers. So I'll review that, and then we'll move on to the last verses. But in all these things, in other words, everything that he's talked about, and he's already talked about persecution, he's talked about famine, he's talked about all of the things that you could face potentially, and the Roman believers did in fact face. Some of them would be martyred. Paul himself, in the coming persecution of Nero in the first century, this is getting close to that time. The book of Romans is getting close to the end of Paul's life, actually. And the persecution had already broken out, but not in its most intense form. And in all these things, so it's not positive, not bright. So no matter the circumstances, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. And let me just remind you, in these things, not away from them. In other words, in the midst of them, as we struggle, as we face hardship and persecution and all these things, not away from them. We are overwhelming conquerors. And I gave you the meaning of that word. That's where Nike gets its brand name from the part of the word Nikao, Nike, Nikao means to conquer or needs means to be victorious overwhelming and it has a preposition part of it so to overconquer or hyperconquer is really the idea of the word there it's in the present tense so that means that this is ongoing you might face something today something else crops up tomorrow you may have faced something yesterday, and today is a new day. So you have to face whatever you have to encounter day by day. It's ongoing. So no matter what we experience in this life, until we go to be with the Lord, which he's already talked about, until glorification, we can be overwhelming conquerors. We don't have to be defeated, even to the point of death. And the means, the verse tells us, it's through not only the intercessor, verse 34, Christ Jesus that prays for us and is in the process of praying right now, right this moment at the right hand of the Father, but he has our best interests in mind. He loves us. That's the conclusion of verse 37. Then verse 38 and 39, he discusses this comprehensive Conquest. For I am convinced 
And when he says he's convinced, this is a firm conviction. There's no doubt in the mind of the apostle here. In fact, it's a very strong word that he uses here. This is comprehensive. He stands convinced. This one is in the perfect tense. This is a tense in the Greek. We don't have, well, I guess you could uh, have it in English, but it's not as evident. But in the Greek text, it's a past tense. In other words, he stands convinced in the past, but it has ongoing effects or ongoing results. So he continues. No matter what he experiences, he will not be dissuaded, you might say. So he stands convinced nothing's going to dissuade him. And in that, what is he convinced of? And he goes through a long list here. We skirted through them real quickly. So I'd like to kind of expand upon them a little bit and then uh, give you a little introduction to chapters 9, 10, and 11. So neither death. And like I said, some of the Roman people were being martyred, some of them uh, in the Colosseum that I've used as kind of a background slide at the beginning. Some of them were a source of entertainment in that culture. I guess they enjoyed seeing people die and suffer at the hands of not only gladiators or animals. So death, that's not going to separate. In fact, that brings people into an immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even worse than death for the Christian is life, (laughs) is the pain, the suffering, the persecution, the toil, the nakedness that he listed before, all the things that he has in the prior passages. So life, the insecurity and all of the negative things that we could and in fact Roman citizens did, Roman believers did in fact experience. So there's nothing in life that can separate us That's the point here. In fact, that's what he made, the point. He's giving expansion to what can separate us from the love of Christ. None of these things. So any insecurity in life where we face from day to day different situations that can bring not only insecurity, but bring the various levels of difficulty. So... When he says death and life, present experiences. So nothing in our present experiences can separate us from the love of Christ. Now he deals with things outside of this life. And if you're a believer, you know that the Bible teaches that there's a realm, the unseen realm. This is one of the passages that kind of tells us something about that. In that unseen realm, in fact, this room is filled with creatures that we can't even see or sense or even know about. But apparently there is a realm in which obviously there is because of scripture of the unseen where there are angelic creatures nor angels. This is not clear, but these may be positive or good angels nor principalities. If you put together all of the verses that deal with angelic creatures, you find out there's a hierarchy. In fact, it seems to be somewhat complex, more than what we can sort out just from the biblical text. Principalities, these are creatures at a higher level, it appears. In fact, they could refer to government officials as well. But in this context with angels, it's probably the demonic realm since they're put together together. And most of the others are kind of contrasts. 
In fact, they're like merisms. You know what a merism is? A merism, we use merisms. I worked day and night. It's a merism. doesn't mean that I work 24 hours necessarily, but it means I work very intensely from one extreme to the other extreme. That's what a merism is. So when you have death nor life, everything that happens in experience all the way to the end of it, it's kind of a merism. We may have another one here, neither angels, good angels, or the other extreme, the uh, negative angels, because we have kind of the contrast through, throughout here. So I would take it as angelic creatures, probably demonic. So attacks from the demon world cannot separate us from the love of Christ, absolute security. In fact, that's one of their goals, is to try to give you the sense that you are separated so that you will be discouraged, so that you will, in fact, doubt the goodness and the security of God. So there are demons, and they do do their work, and their goal is to convince you and to make you think that there's something insecure in the Christian walk, that you could uh, somehow lose what God has promised. M-E-R-I-S-M, I believe. You're asking an engineer how to spell? <laughs> Not quite. Merism. Is that correct? In law, a merism is a big speech by just single things, which is by a conventional phrase that enumerates several of its parts or lists several synonyms for the same thing. In rhetoric, merism is a combination of contrasting and superfluous. Yeah, right. Two extremes. In fact, I take... I take the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens, that that is most distant from us, the heavens and the earth, that which is immediate with us. There's no word in Hebrew for universe. So when it says heavens and the earth, I think I take it as the entire universe, the created realm. So, nor angels, nor principalities. So, celestial creatures cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Nor things present, here you have another merism, nor things to come, things today. Now, you might worry about the future. Am I going to have enough money to retire? Am I going to have enough money to get to the end of life after I retire? All of those insecurities. Is the government going to be secure? Can we trust in it? Is socialism going to take control? Is Trump going to be impeached <laughs> again? All of these insecurities, these thoughts, what's going to happen if all of these events take place? Right now you're hearing a lot about this disease that is coming from China. Am I going to get it? And if I do get it, what's going to be the outcome? Am I going to survive? Well, he's saying are things present nor things that may take place tomorrow or even further down the way. He's kind of just thinking in terms of all of the categories that you might come up with and think, well, what about this? What about this? What about tomorrow? Well, neither things present nor things to come. So now he's dealing with the category of time. He's dealt with present experience, celestial realm. Now he's dealing with issues of time nor powers. Now this is an interesting one because it's by itself. doesn't have a contrast with it and some suggest that Paul couldn't think of one or some suggest that 
it's puzzling. Well, I don't think he necessarily has to fit into a box. Well, why don't you add something here, Paul? He may, and it's not clear because the word powers there, that's the same word that uh, he uses, or, well, the New Testament that Paul also uses for miraculous works, but that didn't fit the context. It's also a word that's associated with government officials, powers, people in uh, high levels or high office, Connie. Maybe he gives contrast because he was thinking of powers, both spiritual and earth, so that whatever power. Whatever power. I think that's probably the best suggestion I've heard, the one that Connie suggests. It could be Satan himself, kind of separating the good and the negative angels. Now, from the passage itself, it's not certain, but he might be highlighting, because that word oftentimes is used of angelic creatures, government officials, angelic creatures, powers, natural powers, miracles, that sort of thing. Kind of interesting in this verse in the New King James, powers is put a little bit before that in this rearranged. Yeah, there's more angels, more principalities, more power. Right, right up the principal. Okay, I didn't look that up, but sometimes you have differences in manuscripts, and apparently the the group of manuscripts that the King James uses rearrange the order to maybe fit in with angelic. Celestial beings, probably giving you a hint of what their interpretation of that is. But uh, you can leave it a little indefinite, but whatever, whatever power, whatever, whether it's physical, spiritual, material, whatever, that's not going to separate us from the love of Christ. And then verse 39, now he's dealing with spatial things here, things that you can think of in terms of space, neither height nor depth. Now, one of the, or actually more than one, a couple of the commentators suggest that the words in the Greek text that are used there sometimes are used in reference to celestial stars, for example, and some of those words were used for astronomical observations and astrology. In fact, uh, who is it? Donald Gray Barnhouse suggests this idea in his commentary. And again, this is not clear. Paul may just be trying to think in these different categories, spatial, time, present, you know, all those categories, so it's not real clear. I just leave it as spatial. And what Barnhouse suggests, in that culture, in the Roman culture, the association with astrology and all of that, any superstitions... In other words, some people are fearful when a black cat crosses their path or they break a mirror, don't walk under a ladder. And he suggests it doesn't matter. You can do things on Friday the 13th, walk under a ladder, kick a black cat as it crosses in front of you, (laughs) throw salt over your shoulder. None of that is going to in any way affect the security that we have in Christ Jesus. But probably the simplest is just a spatial Again, just emphasizing any category you might try to think of. Brainstorm on your own. Think of another category that Paul left out. I think he's he's trying to just go over different things to emphasize the security that we have in Jesus Christ. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Junko. So this book that I have, um, the angels and the things in Yeah, they're together. There's no comma in between those. 
no karma. So, but then there's a karma after. So, are they trying to receive? Yeah, I think they're. Keep in mind, you can't keep from interpreting when you make a translation. So that those are that's an interpretation. They are grouping those together. Good observation. Is that the New King James or the same one? That, yeah. And this is an example. In the Greek text, there's no punctuation. Sentences run together, words, and even words run together. So from the context and from the grammar, you come up with punctuation. And in most cases, it's very clear. And in some cases, like this one, it's not so clear. So the translators try to help you out in terms of what they think is being conveyed here. So that's what's going on in the New King James there. Similar to what Dwayne asked, and I mentioned before, the King James and the New King James utilized a set of manuscripts that were available first in 1611 when the King James was translated or completed. That set of manuscripts is called the Received Text Greek Set. Remember, we don't have what Paul wrote. We don't have the originals, no originals. In any scripture, in fact, all of the Greek classics, you might say, of all of the Greek departments of all of the universities. I look at Sandy because she's in one of those Greek departments or (laughs) studying classical Greek. None of those documents are original. There's a science called textual criticism. It's not just for the Bible. It's utilized to reconstruct Aristotle the writings of Aristotle. Reconstruct the writings of all of the Greek philosophers and writers of B.C. time frame. We have no originals. And when it comes to textual criticism, the New Testament, in fact, the Bible, Old Testament as well, there's no comparison in terms of the amount of data that we have to reconstruct. And in fact, we have more information. We have assurance that we have not lost a single word. We have more data, more words that we have to sort out in terms of comparison to come to conclusions to reconstruct a New Testament. And what, I, what I started to say, let me finish. The King James is dependent on a set of manuscripts. The later translations like the American Standard uh, RSV, since the, what, 1600s, since that time, we've discovered other, some, some, in some cases, older manuscripts, not necessarily better, but older, some very good, and the newer versions take advantage of comparing some of them as well. So sometimes we get more information. Terry? You pretty much answered Dead Sea Scrolls. They were still in translation, but they are closer to the original. Yes. Yes, in fact, in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, did tremendous amount in terms of giving us assurance that what we have in terms of a biblical text is very close to the original. Okay? Didn't mean to get off on technical area. So height nor depth, and kind of the catch-all, you might say, well, what about my own will? What about my own decisions? What what if I just, you know, decide this Christianity thing, I don't like it anymore, you know, it's too hard, there's too many divisions in churches, I've been hurt by it, you know, all of this stuff. 
can I decide on my own? Is it my own volition? God, I'm, I'm done with you. Can I do that? Well, are you a created thing? I think this is kind of the catch-all. Nor any other created thing or creation, you could translate it that way. So he's kind of cut everything. He could have just thrown that out. But I think he gives us kind of a list here to kind of probe our thinking. Can I think of anything else? Can I think, is there anything else out there? Height nor depth, things beyond this world, unseen world. What about the future? What about something way out there that I can't come to? And I should have mentioned when I said height nor depth, it usually refers to things very distant. I think I kind of alluded to like stars and that sort of thing. So height and depth. The word is not used necessarily the depth of the oceans, but more kind of the horizon. In other words, that kind of distance from the earth. But anyway, nor any other created thing. So you can't probably come up with any category. In fact, theologians haven't been able to come up with anything. In fact, this kind of goes against the Arminian, not Armeni, Armenian. Those are people that live south of Russia. Arminian with an I rather than an E, that theological system says you can lose your salvation and you can choose to reject God and you can uh, fall away. In fact, we'll talk some more about that in a moment. Nor any other created thing kind of gives us a complete picture of the whole thing. So anything else? Very comprehensive. Can you think of anything else? Did Paul leave anything out? No? Okay, Liz Linda doesn't think, think so. None of these things will be able to separate us from the love of God. He's been talking about the love of Christ. So the Father is included here. Not only the love of Christ who died on the cross for us. That was the emphasis at the beginning. Now he kind of captures the love of God will be able to separate us from that which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, it's to those that have that relationship with Christ Jesus. And he's talked a lot about being in Christ because Christ is in us. In other words, in fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean that being out of fellowship necessarily separates us because he's already covered all that. So you're assuming that. But It's through that relationship that we have with Jesus Christ that we are secure in him. And I've mentioned several times, in fact, every time that we've been in this passage, if there was any place in uh, the book of Romans or anywhere in the New Testament, because he's dealing with issues of salvation and the next stage, sanctification, if there was any place where there was anything that could cause you to lose that salvation, it would be right here. And instead we have the very opposite, which is in Christ Jesus, so living in him. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but you're going to encounter. I would say that overall, the the viewpoint that we are taking is more of a minority viewpoint. If you take all of Christianity or Christendom, you might say, the majority would believe that you can lose your salvation. So, and the verses they will use, I've got some of the problem passages here, the, the main ones that they will use, and there's a few others as well. So let me give you a real quick rundown on some of these. For example, John 15, 1 through 6, you remember that one? Does someone want to read that? 
Remember that's in the context of uh, Jesus talking about the vine and the branches and joined. In fact, you want to read that part of it. In other words, he's talking about bearing fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, or if you're not connected to the vine, you will not bear fruit. And uh, he makes a real strong statement there. You got it there, Connie? Okay. Into the fire. Is that hell? And burnt. In other words, those that do not produce fruit. Pretty strong statement there. Well, there's a fundamental hermeneutical principle. And this is one of the things I emphasize. I teach the course on hermeneutics for Chafer. You don't establish doctrine on the basis of an illustration. Okay? Don't base doctrine on an illustration. So, this is an illustration. It doesn't... Illustrations are not intended. We don't use them that way. We're every little detail of the illustration. In fact, it's common to say every illustration breaks down if you put push it to its extremes. And this is where this illustration breaks down. It doesn't teach the doctrine that you go to hell as a result of not being joined. What is it illustrating? Jesus illustrates the fact that the vineyard and the vine when it doesn't bear fruit, he sifts them off, he gathers them all up. It's an example of what they would have seen. Yeah, it's an example of uselessness. In other words, it's possible if you're not joined to the vine, your life can be useless. What do you do to something that's useless? You discard it. doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It's just part of the illustration. When you look at an illustration, look for the primary thing that is being illustrated. Primary thing is productivity, fruitfulness, being being connected and the essential connectedness that produces the fruit. And in that illustration, a branch that's not connected withers away and it's useless. And in fact, burning it is not necessarily a bad thing. It can heat your house. Do you think that's having raised Catholic? You have to prove that. Yeah, that supports that idea as well. But this is one of the verses that the Arminian theology, that theology, one of their points is that you can lose your salvation. All right? But you don't base doctrine on an illustration. Well, we have Romans 11, 18 through 21. Do you remember that one? We haven't got there yet. But in Romans 11, it's talking about the the root, and it talks about branches being grafted into the root. In fact, it's, it's addressed to the church and believers. And if God plucked out Israel for, from the root, the warning is, can he pluck out the, uh, the church as well? Well, what do we have? We have another illustration. But that passage is used to say, well, here's the potential of it. And why would he raise the potential if uh, the possibility didn't exist? Well, again, God can, in fact, set a church aside or churches aside. And he's talking about, I think, usefulness again. Kind of the same kind of illustration that he's using with the vine and the branches. But again, the fundamental hermeneutical principle, don't base doctrine on an illustration. 
Well, there's another passage, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. What do we have here? We have another illustration, running. Paul himself says, I run the race, and I run, I can't remember the words that he uses there, but basically with perseverance and with uh, the idea of persisting, lest I what? Lest I be disqualified. What does that mean? Well, the Arminians would use this passage and say, even the Apostle Paul sensed that he could be disqualified. In other words, he could lose his salvation. Is that the meaning of the text? Well, it's another illustration. He's using a running illustration or an athletic illustration. And in the context, you can be eliminated from the the race. You can be disqualified if you violate the rules. Does that mean you're thrown off the team? means there's some consequences, but doesn't mean you're thrown off the team in terms of the illustration here. And I think Paul, in the book of Romans, is making clear neither height nor depth, neither time, neither, and no other created thing can separate us from the love of God himself. So we have another illustration, and you can take that illustration differently. In fact, you can take all three of the illustrations differently than what the Arminian interprets it. Okay? Make sense? What about Hebrews 6? And I forgot, I was going to go back and get some of the slides that I used when we were in Hebrews. That was, was that last century? I can't remember. It was, but that one was really... That one was really sticky. Yeah, that was a sticky... (laughs) Yeah, this is in a doctrinal section. It's not an illustration. And he says, if you got it. Read it. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavens, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming and then have fallen away to be restored again to us because they themselves are crucified, the Son of God, all over again. Wow. Falling away and it's impossible to bring them back. Now the Arminian will interpret that as falling away from the faith. You've lost it because there's no way you can be brought back. And it seems like he's dealing with the believer, right? You've tasted, and in fact, he gives a whole list. In the well, plus, he, like you're always saying, doing the context in this book is written to Christians. Yes. Now, there are, there are some that try to solve the problem. In fact, the uh, Lordship Salvation Camp try to solve that problem by saying, well, there's a mixed group. Amongst the Hebrews, some of them are unbelievers, and he's dealing with the unbeliever here, not dealing with the believer at all. But if you remember, one of the points I made as we got through, went through the book of Hebrews, I made the point that he's dealing with believers. So we have to face the problem head on. And I think there's enough data there to indicate that he's writing to believers. He gives a list of things, in other words, that are only true of believers, Well, he's dealing, I think, with this whole area. In fact, I should have put that slide because I had several points on it. But by memory, let me see if I can remember some of it. Keep in mind, he's dealing with a Jewish audience. He's dealing with an audience that was, in fact, familiar with Scripture and familiar with things relating to, obviously, salvation and the kingdom those issues. We do know when you put all of the passages together that to not live the Christian life 
is in fact damaging and you do lose something if you don't walk in fellowship consistently with the Lord. The whole concept of rewards. And there's passages that indicate you can lose those rewards that have nothing to do with salvation. This is for the believer above and beyond salvation rewards. You do lose something. Linda. Do you lose rewards? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Right. But it has nothing to do with, with salvation. That seems to be, well, depends on how you take where you receive these rewards. Personally, I believe that at the rapture, we go to the bima. That's the Greek word. It's translated judgment seat. The judgment there has nothing to do with salvation. The judgment is evaluation concerning how you live the Christian life after you trusted in Jesus Christ. Okay? And 1 Corinthians 3. In fact, why don't you look it up? Somebody read 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. And notice what I think verse 15 says. Who's got it? Time to read it loud. Okay, Christ is the master builder. He's using an illustration. I have laid the foundation, but let each one take from no Okay, the illustration, the foundation is salvation. Okay. Okay, building on the foundation, that's the Christian life. He's using an analogy, a construction analogy here. You're building with different materials here. Test each one's work. In other words, what do you produce in your Christian walk? And if you're building a building out of hay and stubble, what's going to happen, Dave? <laughs> the wolf comes in. blows it down. There's a Sunday school teacher. Okay. Okay, you build with solid materials. You have you have the foundation, but now you're building walls and you're putting a roof on it, and you got solid materials. In fact, precious materials. You're going to receive a reward. What happens if you use hay, stubble, wood? But he himself will be saved, but as through this burning. This fire, only that that is substantial, only that that is produced by the Holy Spirit is going to endure the bema. Everything else is going to be burned away. And the possibility of suffering loss in that passage. And I believe that the suffering of loss and the giving of rewards are during the millennial kingdom. We'll have different positions. There's lots of passages that indicate that. We will rule with him. We will serve him. We'll be in his administration. And to the extent that we are faithful to him today, to that extent will we, in fact, be elevated or, in some cases, lose a position. I take it, to answer Linda's question, is the Millennial Kingdom is a very specific time frame, and it's in that time frame that we enjoy either rewards or loss of rewards, and heaven is different, eternal existence, eternal life, is different from the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom is part of time, part of the creation. Even though the creation is going to be transformed, Christ is going to be ruling for a thousand years. There's going to be an end to that thousand years. So that's part of the created realm. And then you go into the eternal state. And it's hard to envision what that's like. Okay? So, I think, I kind of 
gone beyond what I was going to say in Hebrews 6, but I think Hebrews 6 is dealing with a believer and the potential of losing. And when we were in that passage, I told you about a few passages like in First John and in James. It talks about a sin unto death. It's talking about the believer. And I think if your life becomes so useless on this earth as a believer, you are in danger of God taking you home to be with him. A discipline. And I think that's part of what's in view here, that you can get to a point where you can't be brought back into fellowship, not into salvation, but brought back into fellowship to be useful as a believer. Karen. Well, it particularly hits me that um, the author is really drawing those Hebrew Christians because they wanted to go back into this. Yes. And he's trying to say that's one of the ways in which you're he crucified him. Do you want to yes. Do yes. And, yes. And when you when you go with that, it is rejecting the Son of God and the God that you say that you're serving. Yes. This break of, of fellowship was very... Um, Right, and when we explained it, we developed a lot of what you're talking about right there in terms of the Jewish culture and Jewish background. Very good. That was very good, Karen. Similarly, Hebrews 10 is very similar as well, and I think is dealing with discipline, God disciplining, as is the Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. If we deliberately go on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no further sacrifice for sin remains, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume all adversaries. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think one deserves to be punished who has trampled on the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant and sanctified him, and insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Okay. Very severe. In other words, how, no. how we live now is important, is the stress of that. And he's talking about in fellowship or out of fellowship. Out of fellowship brings the danger of discipline. And that di- discipline is severe. But it has nothing to do with losing one's salvation. And I, I just want to give you a kind of a brief overview of some of the major passages. There's others that they use. But what we want to close on are some of the ones that we have assurance of. And this is what Romans gives us assurance of. That how can your salvation be at risk when the Holy Spirit is praying for you? 16 through 17. Romans 8, 16 through 17. How can you lose your salvation when we have assurance of glorification, the end product? That's Roman 8, 17, and you can use verse 30 as well. So we are going to be glorified. And remember, that was the stress of those verses there. We have a promise of resurrection, 19 through 23. That's the whole thrust. The whole creation is anticipating this day that is assured. This is part of the plan of God. We will experience resurrection, 19 through 23. What about the certainty of God's plan? Remember the chain, the analogy of the chain that can't be broken, 28 through 30. That gives assurance. In fact, that's the whole purpose of that passage. The plan of God is certain. Starts in eternity past, and he goes even into the future to glorification, and he puts it in the past tense. Remember the aorist tense, as if it has already taken place. And if God is for us, there's no one else that can be against us. 
That's 31 and 32. We have the ultimate court. Greater than the Supreme Court. Remember the illustration I gave you. Greater than the Supreme Court. The decision was that you are justified. So who can bring a charge? No one can bring a charge. Satan can say, and if that's not clear enough, Jesus Christ paid the penalty. He paid the penalty of the sentence that uh, we had when we were condemned, but God justified us. That's the decision of the ultimate court. And if that's not enough, if the prayers of the Holy Spirit are not enough, we have the prayers of Jesus, verse 34. And in the context of encouragement in terms of security. And in 35 through 39, nothing can separate us. Nothing you can conceive of can separate us from the love of God. And you have no hint at the place that you would expect a warning. You have no hint that our sanctification and or our salvation is at risk. And then you have all these other passages as well. If we had the time, we could look them up. John 6, 39 through 40. John 10, 27 through 29, if you want to copy these. Ephesians 1, 13, and you want to include 14 there. There's other verses in Ephesians. Philippians 1, 6, where he will complete the work that he began. The Ephesians passage, we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. Can anyone break that seal? No. John 10, 27 through 29. The, the grip of Jesus Christ, the omnipotent grip, is going to keep us. And if that's not enough, the omnipotent grip of the Father is going to hold us. Remember that passage as well. And there's others as well. But these are the main ones that support the idea of assurance of, in this context, sanctification and salvation. So, our last principle in chapter 8, sanctification is absolutely sure. No insecurity. And very quickly here, Romans 9 through 11. We don't have time to elaborate. We'll start with this slide next week, or we'll get into this slide. I'll give you more detail. We have a little bit of a contrast from chapter 8 to chapter 11. This is a, a joyous conclusion. And then Paul starts off with, being very, very grieved over Israel. And if you were Jewish and you heard chapter 8 and you were sitting here today and you saw this great assurance, you're not going to lose your salvation and you're a Jew back there. Well, what about us? Did we lose our relationship to God? Are we not set aside? Did we lose something here? And if you're a Jew, what happened? And in fact, he's going to start off and list all of the privileges of the Jews. We'll get into some of that next time. Hmm, can't see that very well. Uh, we have the promise of eternal security. What about Israel? Is Israel secure? Yes. Well, it appears like they're not. They're set aside. They're on hold. They're on hold. That's a good way of describing it. So all of the promises, and he's going to go through some of them. I'll kind of overview some of those promises. Lots of promises that they will be the prominent nation of the world. The promises that those that bless you will be blessed. Those that curse you will be cursed. Now it seems like Israel is cursed. What about the Jews under wrath that Paul mentions in chapter 2? They're piling up wrath. How can they receive wrath if they're God's chosen people? 
Lots of questions. What about the law? Paul's been emphasizing the law, and you can't be justified by the law. Well, this is at the heart of Judaism. This is how you tried to please God in the Old Testament, or at least this is the way the Jews tried. The law is ineffective. What are you talking about, Paul? In fact, the Jew would say, your gospel is inconsistent with the Old Testament, and if it's inconsistent with the Old Testament, it's in error. So, Paul's gospel, what about it? What about the kingdom? What happened to the kingdom? The Old Testament stresses the kingdom and Israel being prominent in the kingdom, the Messiah coming, and you might even ask, uh, what about the promise of Messiah? Well, Paul's going to answer all those questions in Romans 9 through 11, and he's going to answer a lot more as well that will be useful to you and I today. And that's some of what I want to stress next week. God is for us. Nothing else matters. He wants to close. Got to the end today. The okay, end. I'll, I'll pray. I, I should you put. You got to the end of eight. I should put <laughs> the end here. <laughs> Go ahead, Karen. Lord, I do thank you that you are for us, and nothing can be against us. I thank you for your whole spirit, the fact that you intercede for a holy, and righteous God, that you draw us into a relationship with you. Pour out of us the gift of salvation, the many truths that are in your Romans, and particularly in the book Dave chapter. I thank you, Lord, that um, we've had such a wonderful time studying you. I pray that it would become deep into our hearts and our minds, and those truths would be there that we would be able to share that and encourage us. And we thank you, Lord, for all the work that Ray puts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.